Hi, welcome back to the show. It's been a couple months since we've recorded an episode, and um, it's nice to be back, especially in this springtime weather in Edmonton. How's it going, Nicholas? Yeah, it's been uh, yeah a couple months. It's weird to think that that much time has passed, um, but I guess there's you know a few reasons why we haven't um, done an episode recently. But I guess just a little catch up here, Omar, um, maybe what's like one good thing that's uh, happened to you since February when we last recorded and maybe one not so good thing. I'll start with the good. Um, I went for a walk the other week and um, the trails in Edmonton are very, very beautiful, but I saw a moth um, and I'm really into, uh, just like trying to spot and just seeing different bugs in the wild. So that was a really, really nice thing that happened to me. Um, not so great thing that happened, um, kind of dealing with a lot of like fatigue. I feel like I've been like super exhausted, uh, just trying to juggle all the different mm-hmm. parts of my life and keep up, um, things, but, um, yeah, taking taking time to rest has also been really good. So the bad is also partly good too. Yeah, fatigue. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. Um, for myself, good and bad. I think I'll relate both of my answers to um, allergies. Uh, so I found out this week that um, I'm probably allergic to basil. Uh, it kind of sucks because obviously I love Thai food and dishes with basil in them and. It's obviously never been a problem before. Definitely sucks, but I mean, I think it's also an easy enough thing to avoid. And um, the good news, obviously you mentioned it's spring and it's nice. Uh, when I was a kid, I had really bad like springtime allergies and usually they would be pretty bad around this time or maybe over the next month. But um, yeah, over the last, I would say four years, um, they haven't really been bad at all, um, or maybe not even really, really noticeable at all. So I guess it's a little bit of a, an allergy trade-off there. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, a long time since we've done an episode. I mean, we actually, you know, went into this year, I would say, with like a pretty good plan. Um, we were really happy with the last episode we did, episode 21. Um, I think that's probably our best episode yet, I think. Uh, we, you know, were able to touch on a lot of really important things, most noticeably patterns of police funding and support for police and kind of taking a step back and looking at just those trends over the last year and looking at the kind of just cycle, uh, endless cycle of increasing police support that we're in the midst of, um, the last episode, we actually only recorded like half of the the notes that we had because we just realized we were already at like a pretty long um, episode time. So yeah, after that, we were pretty pretty ready to to follow up with um, with another episode, and uh, felt like we had a lot of you know cogent arguments coming together. And uh, it was actually right when I think we were just about to post um, this kind of like breakdown of recent police funding increases um, when I uh, saw the news that two Edmonton police officers had been killed on duty. Yeah, Omar, maybe you can give a little bit more context into uh, what went down. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so two officers were uh, responding to a family dispute um, at a Northwest uh, apartment. 
on March 16th and um, a teenager, a 16-year-old, um, shot them multiple times um, and also uh, critically injured uh, his mother, the 16-year-old that did the shooting. Um, and it definitely um, changed the mood um, in the city a lot. I feel like there was... Um, obviously a period of grieving, um, a lot of, uh, memorials and a very large funeral happened at Rogers Center, um, for the police. And, um, I think it was a moment that was, um, a little bit difficult to, uh, kind of continue our plans as we had them laid out. Um, but, uh, I think we're ready to kind of talk about this and, and dive into this issue. And um, we have uh, an interview as well that took a little bit of time to put together, but I'm also really happy with um, how that turned out. Yeah, it was definitely kind of a, I don't know, read the room moment in the aftermath of a tragedy like that, which is obviously horrible for those officers and for their families and communities on a personal level. Uh, it just wasn't the time to be putting out messaging that is critical of police. In the weeks since, that's definitely just something that we've been asking ourselves is like, why is that? You know, logically, we know that we can separate individual tragedies that affect individual officers with the goals and premise of a violent colonial institution like the police. Yeah, no, I, I think um, this this uh, this situation that's that's gone down, like you said, is is very tragic for for the families and for the policing community generally. But I think it doesn't detract from you know, so much uh, critique and so many broader institutional questions that, you know, can't really be put on pause um, because uh, situations happen. But I think there are, um, I guess, a lot of questions that come up based on the um, reaction um, or the sentiment that was put out um, and how this situation has um you know, reinforced the larger institution and um, a lot of the pitfalls that we've we've mentioned before. Yeah, a little bit more context into this shooting. Um, the 16-year-old who killed the, the two police officers was previously known to police through a uh, mental call that happened um, a few months ago. And he had actually, just before this, uh, this shooting, shot someone at uh, a pizza hut and... Um, was at large, basically. So this obviously raises like a few issues. One, just around how well equipped our, you know, mental health supports or our mental health system here in the city is for uh, addressing these um, issues or um, addressing individuals like this in our society. Um, and then another, I guess, is how, how police you know, respond to violent crime. And I guess just what is the role of police in our society? I saw this uh, comment that someone had left on Reddit in the um, aftermath of the shooting just after the news had um, come out. Um, I, I'm just going to read it here. Uh, so the post says, I hope this leads to EPS putting more effort into their investigations of seemingly random shootings in the future. 
As someone who lives a couple blocks from where all this happened, the police response to the apartment shooting, that's where the officers died, was massive compared to the response to the Pizza Hut, that's where the shooter had um, shot someone just before. There was a very real threat to the public following the Pizza Hut shooting, but there was zero visible police presence in the community afterward. EPS didn't even warn the public until the media got a hold of the story. Yeah, I think um, there's been a larger um, conversation and action taken before this event ever happened, specifically based around um, Chinatown that's been happening for a few years and the um, social disorder um, that's also connected to the LRT in Edmonton and how in order to protect not only people, but also property, of course, there needs to be higher police presence with the Alberta sheriffs moving in as well. So policing has been allocated towards um, a lot of these, um, a lot of these social um, situations that we know the root determinants and the funding available um, can be directed towards things I think in the long term actually solve these problems like housing that's been critically underinvested in, safe supply um, access, um, like healthcare and mental health care um, supports. But this um, comparison in that comment, I think, really brings out, um, you know, a lot of questions around, um, you know, how certain um, issues are treated and how those issues, um, I think, represent themselves or are... Um, then used to further um, continue a narrative or to further um, support the police and, you know, the government of the day that wants to keep things going the way they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the last episode um, back in February, we talked about how the province had taken um, these millions of dollars that were supposedly earmarked for those root causes um, that you just mentioned, addiction, um, houselessness, uh, mental health. And actually just put it towards installing more police in Chinatown uh, to police that population rather than giving them the proper supports. In, in those kinds of conversations, you hear a lot about uh, what people like to call crime prevention. In any kind of conversation around like violation of privacy, of human rights, you know, when we talk about carding, street checks, when we talk about putting those sheriffs downtown to just like over-police that population. The conversation and the rhetoric that you hear politically or from police is always about crime prevention. We need to basically violate people's privacy and human rights in order to prevent crime from happening. So there's millions being put towards that, millions from the province, millions from the city. It goes up and up, as we've seen with every budget increase over the past year, and especially the budget increases that were specifically going towards police in Chinatown. Um, yet, when it comes to an active shooter uh, on the loose, potentially uh, an active shooter who had just killed somebody because the shooting victim at the uh, Pizza Hut was in the hospital in critical condition, were there enough resources that were put towards that? The officers who ultimately died um, were sent to the um, domestic call uh, with the same shooter as the Pizza Hut, knowing that this shooter was on the loose. Um, and this 
16 year old having also been known to police through the previous um, mental health call yet uh, they were kind of sent into that situation to their death so it's like how did that happen and how is that not a reflection of like misallocating resources or gaslighting the public into what crime prevention actually is when millions of dollars are put into this what's being labeled as crime prevention um, downtown but an active shooter on the loose who's known to police um, and potentially just killed somebody can then go and uh, kill a couple officers yeah definitely and i think that what you're mentioning here and kind of these issues i think it also becomes an issue of like what what is centered in these conversations or in these decisions where if human dignity and you know providing a certain standard of living that isn't based on um, centering um, business owners that isn't based on centering um, the ruling elite how would decisions then be made because i think what we see here is definitely decades of centering um the rights and the interests of of property owners at the expense of you know human dignity for everyone this like situation is like especially tragic because the individual people that are you know caught and lose their lives for reasons that are built into the system and the institutions, um, those reasons aren't, you know, explored or questioned. This is just used to like further, you know, justify and support and like continue to pour resources into, um, what, what like feels like more fuel to the fire, basically. Yeah. So coming back to that kind of dynamic of like, you know, logically knowing there's a, a difference between individual police officers putting their life on the line and the role of the police in our society as an institution. And in this case, you might even say that due to that like misallocation of resources or the police as an institution not putting the resources into a place that would actually protect police or protect um, citizens from this active shooter actually led to this tragedy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you could say there's like a clear distinction between the tragedy and the institution, or in this case, you might even say that the failures of the institution um, led to that tragedy. Um, yet what we've seen in the aftermath of uh, this tragedy, um, the killing of those two police officers is like a clear renewed political support for police as an institution. Um, and this, you know, has come in the form of political rhetoric, political sentiment, public sentiment overall, um, media coverage, and of course, financial resources, keeping the money train going, increasing the police budgets, giving police more control, more power, more resources. Yeah, so part of it was they had a huge funeral. Um, they flew in hundreds of officers from across the country, paraded the RCMP through the streets, closed things down. Um, they had a very large ceremony at Rogers Place that we don't know the cost for, but I'm assuming is you know, a very expensive new arena. It's going to be very expensive. On top of that, there's been a large political response. So the government of Alberta 
announced that they would be giving uh, Edmonton and Calgary 100 officers split between each city. Nearly $8 million in funding was announced for the PACT team, so that's police and crisis teams, which essentially amounts to more mental health funding under the purview and control of police instead of any other um, organization or institution. Um, and transit officers have also um, been consolidated um, and been put under the purview of police as well. And there's been a rise of interest from the general public, according to police, for um, joining. Um, so potential increase in like recruiting numbers. So there's a huge increase of support and uh, resources given towards police um, in response to the tragedy that they had a hand in causing specifically. Yeah, it's it's pretty messed up. And it kind of reminds me um, a little bit of uh, maybe maybe we mentioned it here on, on the podcast before, but basically after Roe v. Wade was stricken down in the United States, um, the, the Democratic Party raised like hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, people were, were sharing that fact, basically saying, if you're ever wondering why Democrats in Congress never codified Roe v. Wade into law, this is why. Because when it's stricken down by the Supreme Court and it impacts people, they can basically use that response to uh, fundraise, to generate more public support and uh, political support for their institution. I don't know. I feel like it's almost a similar thing here where, yeah, you hear about two officers dying, laying their lives on the line. This is a tragic, tragic incident. And when you look at where police as an institution put the resources, you might even say um, that the police service failed these officers by not protecting them or putting them in a situation where they lost their lives. Yet their deaths are actually used to venerate um, and celebrate the police as an institution, that same institution that you could say failed them. Um, and the police as an institution are getting so much more resources and funding and political support from this. And just to kind of remind you what police actually use those resources for, it's not to protect police officers. It's not to prevent the kind of incident where these two officers lost their lives. Let me just go through just some news from the last couple days here. So basically, no charges for Edmonton Police Constable who kicked Indigenous teen in the head. Uh, questions over video of Edmonton Police arrest showing knee near driver's neck. And then lastly, Alberta Sheriffs and Edmonton Police execute nearly 3,000 arrests. These are the officers that they deployed into Chinatown in February. Apparently, they've executed nearly 3,000 arrests in that area since February. So, yeah, this is where police's resources go to as an institution. It's towards um, over-policing uh, marginalized populations. Um, it's towards literally keeping a knee on the neck of racialized folks, of people going through the kinds of challenges that require, you know, mental health or addictions or houselessness supports. And that should really just remind you uh, what role the police as an institution play in our society. Yeah, and the role that they've, you know, historically played, right, and how that role is connected to... Um, you know, an international struggle against, you know, larger forces or at least um, 
how how we've gone to this point historically. Um, so that really leads into the conversation that I had with Silu Collective. And Silu Collective are a group of grassroots organizers in so-called Ottawa who've come together to essentially um, build community education and, you know, really take action against policing in schools, um, among other issues. One of their real um, successful moments was um, actually getting SROs out of schools in the Carleton, Ottawa school board. And they released a really great report um, that you should check out called the Ottawa Students Speak Out, Cops Out of Our Schools in 2021. Our conversation definitely focused on how they organize and the different beliefs that are behind their organizing, specifically about abolition um, and how imperialism uh, takes shape, not only um, in Canada, but how it can be exported in other places and um, the influence that that has on the organizing that they do. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really, really, really insightful conversation. And the fact that they've been able to uh, be successful in the organizing that they do while also um, providing services to their community in very effective ways that work outside of state institutions um, was definitely something that um, really interested me. And um, I think that listeners will enjoy as well. Yeah, my name is Haley Yasmeen. Um, I'm a grassroots organizer and a member and co-founder of a Silu Collective, which is based on unceded Algonquin territory in so-called Ottawa. We are an abolitionist grassroots uh, collective fighting and struggling for policing free schools in the city. Um, and we ran a campaign that began in 2020. Um, it was our No Cops in School campaign where we successfully were able to um, terminate the school resource officer program um, across the city, across all four Ottawa school boards. So that was a huge win for us and, and the broader Ottawa community. Um, yeah, that's a bit about us and, and myself. Hi, I'm May. Um, I use they them pronouns. I'm an abolitionist and uh grassroots organizer located on uh, occupied Algonquin territory in so-called Ottawa, the uh, belly of the imperialist beast of this country. Um, and I have been organizing with a Silu Collective since uh, 2021, spring of 2021. Um, alongside the win of summer 2021 um, for removing SROs from the public school boards, uh, a Silu, we've also worked towards um, political education of youth through uh, a radical reading group for high school students and recent graduate graduates, which I co-facilitated with Haley Yasmin. Um, and we've been doing work alongside families at school and board meetings, uh, mostly in 2022. And more recently, we've turned a lot of our attention inwards at creating better relationships um, within our organization and uh, building resilience and sustainability in our organizing in general. So um, as grassroots organizers, um, when did you really realize that there was a need to create uh, the Asilu Collective? And um, how did your past, whether it's through work or just 
life experiences um, inform the community that you've built today? Um, yeah, I can start us off. Um, Asila Collective was, uh, it was essentially born out of the Black Rebellion and, and uprisings that came out of the movement for Black Lives um, in 2020, which we saw across the Western world. Um, myself and Asilu's two other co-founders, uh, Grace and Lello, saw the heightened visibility that police violence had amongst the general population, um, even like corporate media, mainstream media. Um, and, and we saw it as like an opportune moment to speak to what has been happening to children and youth for decades um, in schools um, because of policing. And, you know, just knowing that the phenomenon of policing in schools and having cops in presence in schools, you know, it's absolutely not new. Community organizers and, and parents, youth themselves, educators, um, support workers, they've all been identifying this for a very long time. And, and so we knew that the heightened visibility uh, of police violence would be a way to galvanize the Ottawa community into, into taking action to address the longstanding issue of removing cops from schools. And it did. Um, it was able to to mobilize a lot of folks across the city um, in support of removing cops from schools. And we, through this, like were able to connect with parents and, and other folks who had been advocating this for a while. And we were able to work together to win our campaign collectively. Like it was um, a win, not just for Silu, it was a win for a lot of us. Um, and I guess just to, um, address this the second half of your question about um informing um like what informed building a silu i think for the three of us as co-founders um it it really was like our first time um organizing and and engaging with grassroots organizing and so a lot of what grounded us and directed us throughout our campaign and throughout making connections and, and building relationships with people was our differing lived experiences. Um, we're all young racialized people um, and thinking about how our experiences differ amongst um, the three of us, you know, it kind of goes back to even Asilu's name, um, which is bridging together the word origin in, in three different ancestral languages. Um, and then I guess using these diff differing lived experiences uh, amongst the three of us, like me, Grace, and Lello, and using this understanding of that to form an abolitionist material analysis and identifying folks in the communities, folks in schools, um, who are the youth that are impacted by policing. Um, because it wasn't necessarily the three of us who were experiencing this, um, but acknowledging that there are people with similar experiences as us who are impacted by policing. And I feel like a lot of our analysis that we were able to build over um, the first little bit of our campaign and, and the founding of Asilu was strengthened and it, it was bolstered by whatever learnings we took away from organizing alongside old, older and more experienced activists. Um, and of course, like ongoing engagement with abolitionist theorizing, um, literature. And I feel like that all has really like set the foundation for what Asilu is today and, and the successes that we've been able to gain. 
I completely agree. Um, I wasn't around for the formation of Asilu. I did join a little bit later once Asilu had already, you know, created a lot of movement in the community around or the removal of SROs, particularly the Ottawa Carlton District School Board's review of the policing presence. Um, that's where I was able to connect with Haley Yasmin and other Asilu members and then eventually join the collective. Um, but another thing that I just wanted to note that Haley Yasmin brushed on was how a lot of our uh, community was kind of created and built and expanded upon through um, specifically our anti-imperialist politics. Um, we view ridding police from schools as like a larger movement than just um, like student justice and racial justice within schools and our communities in so-called Canada, but how the imperialist um, motivations of the Canadian government and other um, colonial and imperial governments across the world really use policing as a means to suppress and oppress communities um, like internationally and that our struggle towards policing free schools in um, one school board in one city in one province in one country is connected to um, the removal of imperial and occupy, uh, occupying forces um, that are, you know, police um, policing arms of states like Israel, of states like um, Canada here uh, and in the U.S. and in other places across the world. So in, in that larger, broader context, but also in your specific location, um, what does abolition mean to you um, and how do you think maybe that's been communicated since uh, 2020 things have become a lot more mainstream or let's say a lot more visible um, to the larger public? Yeah, I mean, even to just ex expand a bit and um, first to on what May was saying, um, like abolition, when it comes to my mind, I feel like it means the elimination of these oppressive forces that May was just speaking about um, on a global scale, because these have arisen as a result of historical and ongoing colonial and imperialist exploitation. Um, so thinking about white supremacy and racial capitalism and whatever has resulted from that axis of domination. And so naturally, that with that comes the elimination of prisons, borders, settler states, like what may mention Canada here, like um, the US, Israel, other states, the elimination of transphobia. Like, I feel like oftentimes as abolitionists, we're immediately thinking um, immediately about um, the abolition of cops in prisons and then end there, which of course is extremely important. And that is something we specifically organize around with the CELU. Um, but I always try to remind myself and, and we do this like organizationally, like why these things exist in the first place. And in Canada, um, you know, it's a result of ongoing settler colonial violence here. And then the state exports this violence um, and it exports the violence elsewhere to subjugate our, our comrades and our siblings in the global south. So abolitionist struggles like we're always like contending with the internationalist nature of what we're up against and it means um to me like abolition and i know the rest of asilu it means that these global violences um they cease to exist and i do feel like within the context of policing free schools in ottawa um 
like the global understanding that we have developed over the years that Asilu has um, been active as an organizing collective, this global understanding has um, like has made abolition um, in the context of policing free schools in Ottawa very revel- relevant. Um, like we have worked um, with migrant youth and their families. I know May can speak a bit more to this, um, but we've worked with migrant youth and their families. And, you know, these these folks have fled countries where Canada ensures economic sanctions, environmental destruction, political instability, um, and just like ongoing war because it's profitable and not only is it profitable but it's also part of this larger system of domination where like across the world whether it's in your homeland or in the imperial court like you're going to be policed you're going to be terrorized and coerced and um violated no matter what you you know no matter what because you experience race, class, and gender in a very particular way. So, you know, bringing it back to Policing Free Schools Ottawa, the children and the youth who are facing policing in Ottawa schools, they're experiencing it almost as like an extension of global policing or even vice versa, because it operates within like the same system of subjugation. Um, And we also like throughout um, the past, I guess it's now like three years, um, Asilu has advocated for Palestinian liberation across different um, uh, Palestinian groups, so Palestinian youth movement, Ottawa specifically. Um, and this is because, again, the oppression that Palestinian youth are experiencing specifically in Ottawa schools. So it's happening in Ottawa as a result of um, imperialist domination that Canada exports and um, the way it operates um here uh in our country as well um they're being silenced they're being punished and 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 threatened specifically because of their identity as palestinians and the policing of palestinian youth is so tied to the the policing of um youth in palestine as well so um like just like what may was saying again like when we're struggling against policing in auto schools we're we're part of this struggle against all forms of policing and oppression um and it, it's even seen in our solidarity work with policing free schools comrades uh, in the U.S. as well. And, and we frequently meet with those folks um, to and it, it just kind of demonstrates how um, how global uh, the nature of policing is. I completely uh, that resonates a lot with me. And I was thinking a lot about specifically in this question, like what abolition means in the struggle for policing free schools Um, for us in Ottawa, policing free schools looks a lot different. Like our struggles for abolition look a lot different than in cities and places where the student resource or school resource officers have not yet been abolished because there's this idea that because we do not have cops in schools in in a formal program capacity that we've somehow achieved like this police free school Um, but in reality we still are fighting for abolition even in these so-called police free spaces because even though we may not have the same frequency of police uh, in uniform and in an authoritative roles interacting with youth um, and with schools and education 
educational spheres. We do have a lot of policing that continues to go on at the hands of parents, at the hands of other youth um, who have uh, some form of power over their peers, um, and more so and most commonly at the hands of administrators and teachers um, towards mostly uh, racialized youth. Um, and that relates directly to the policing that Palestinian students often face in Ottawa schools. Um, because even though the policing that they may experience, uh, that they experience may not be directly tied to an SRO, it is tied to the idea that these spaces are meant to be um, where we assimilate, where we learn to um, fit in in white supremacist uh, dominant cultures to the best of our abilities um, and to, you know, be coerced into certain um, hierarchies that, uh, you know, make schooling a place of violence and a place of assimilation instead of a place of curiosity and exploration and learning. So that idea of abolition being beyond just police and prisons and their uh, outright um, uh, non-existence anymore in our world, it also just moves into the idea that policing as an infrastructure and as a way of, you know, relating to each other is used um, to further the, the settler project here in so-called Canada and to resist policing um, in schools means to re resist like Haley Yasmin mentioned transphobia to resist white supremacy in all its forms um, and that can be seen in more interpersonal relationships and not just in um, a really straightforward police with a gun in a school punishing someone but we can see how things like academic streaming will target uh, racialized and uh, disabled youth and place them, um, you know, on a track towards the kind of life that white administrators think um, is inherent to their to their existence and to their journey in education. Um, we also see that in things like um, suspensions and expulsions and who um, is most likely targeted in those forms of, you know, removals. Um, we see that in so many different ways than just uh, a cop being present in the hallways. So abolition of all forms of policing is part of the struggle very intimately in Ottawa right now. Mm -hmm. That's uh, really well said. And um, in the context of global imperialism and um, a lot of the other uh, points that you just made, you um, have a very central role when it comes to education in the organizing that you do. Um, and in 2021, you released a report titled Ottawa Students Speak Out, Cops Out of Our Schools. Um, what role does education play in your collective as police departments and school boards and just the government generally organizes to defend the practice of SROs specifically, but also policing in a wider context, as you mentioned before? Yeah, um, I really like this question. Um, I feel because I feel like um, a CELU as like a collective, we've really um, prioritized political education in our campaigning and in our movement work more broadly. Um, and the report you mentioned, Ottawa Students Speak Out, Cops Out of Our Schools, that we released in 2021, um, and it's on our website if anyone wants to, anyone listening wants to check it out. Um, 
I feel like the report was really generative of the lived experiences of youth, um, youth that we both um, like were organizing with and, and other folks and the, the realities that they faced within schools in Ottawa as young, racialized, um, migrant, indigenous, disabled, queer, um, and trans people. Um, and throughout our No Cops in School campaign, we really wanted to to capture these lived experiences and uplift them through the report and the campaigning we were doing. But we also wanted to ensure that youth were building upon the understanding they had of themselves and their own lived experiences and then form an analysis that could be applied more broadly. Um, and so political education has just played a huge role in our collective. Um, I mean, we've since since the beginning of, of the formation of ASILU, we've hosted many teach-ins um, and workshops on policing, abolition, movement building for youth, and also the wider community, um, like parents and um, and educators, other folks have, have shown up, which is great. And we've also hosted multiple um, abolitionist book clubs for youth um, called ASILU's Radical Reading Club. Um, and we've built great relationships with youth through these um, different things that we've done. And uh, I feel like without political education, it, it's really easy to be led astray from a concrete abolitionist analysis. Um, like we can accidentally become reactionary. We can fall into reformist traps and, you know, think that diversity in the police force will stop police violence, which obviously um, it absolutely will not. Um, and, you know, to stop this, like, uh, we need to ensure that access to political education um, is ensured. And it's so much easier for youth and community members um, to hear and then agree with what school boards and like auto police service, other state entities, like what they're saying about keeping cops in schools for, you know, so-called safety. It's a lot easier for them to like agree with this when they don't have access to political education. And so I do feel like as a like we have a responsibility as grassroots organizers who are struggling for abolitionist liberation it's our responsibility to educate and mobilize our community around having a correct abolitionist analysis and ensuring um, folks aren't being led astray um, be because that does happen. Um, and even actions like um, like postering or out outreach to youth groups in the city to notify them of like events and, and building relationships through this, this is all part of um like the political education that we've been doing over the years. And we've found it really effective and meaningful. Uh, we've also engaged in some education um, around um, specifically our experiences as a collective in creating movement and creating change um, and like almost reality checking to our supporters about, um, about, those actions so for more detail um we've hosted a twitter space around the uh, municipal election for ottawa in 2022 um, due to the rise of fascist candidates specifically seeking um, school board trustee office in order to uh, put forward their own racist and transphobic agendas within schools um, and a part of our education piece on that was one to make 
uh, our supporters and followers and the wider community aware of the rise in specifically fascist um, candidates and transphobic candidates while also um, giving folks a reality check that we had already been dealing with racism and transphobia from our current or at the time from the current board of trustees and that it was not as simple as voting in the quote uh, the quote right unquote people and everything will be fixed but it's actually that consistent and constant um public pressure um you know community push for change that will get us where we all desire to go which is you know uh, liberatory um, futures where we can see education as a real space for youth for youth to excel and thrive rather than um, what seems to be you know just uh, really carceral and um, rep repressive spaces um, that pose as educational spheres um, so a lot of that education around like our own movement and what we've had to face. Um, sharing can be public um, and education can be public. And then there's also been, like Haley Yasmin was mentioning, just that sharing with other youth, with other organizers, with other community members about our experiences and that, you know, mutual sharing back and forth as, you know, education around local contexts and around safety and around, um, uh, sustainability and um, keeping each other motivated and uh, well and alive. <laughs> and, um, you know, that education piece is so important because for ourselves, at least um, within the collective, we would not be where we are without like very intentionally um, engaging in our own education as well as educating those around us um, because, you know, all of our all of our wins have been um, really grounded in educating ourselves and others um, about the reality that we're living in and the reality of our experiences and the reality of our power when we work um, as a community against state forces. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in the context of um, your report, you shared a lot of student experiences um, through stories and um, I think on this topic of sharing, um, I just want to ask, why is it so important to share not only stories, but um, resources, um, strategies, other things, um, especially given the unique shape of policing and how it takes shape in uh, school environments uh, with children and youth? Yeah, um, I think like one of the reasons that we chose to do this was um, like a CELUS membership is made up of young people, including me and I, um, but not any current high school students. So we've organized with high school students and alongside them, um, but youth haven't made up our actual membership. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, sharing stories from youth was important for us. It's to uplift their voices and experience of those who are currently impacted by policing in schools. Um, I mean, like I had an SRO, like a school resource officer um, in my high school in Ottawa growing up, but that doesn't mean that I understand necessarily the material conditions of today's youth under the current regime of policing in schools, um, you know, as time has evolved. So I feel like, you know, storytelling was a great way of also not only, you know, ensuring that 
the voices of youth were uplifted and that their stories were prioritized um, in our campaigning. But also I found um, that we were able to empower a lot of youth through storytelling. Um, it let them know that they can organize to create change. Um, and, uh, you know, it also mobilized a lot of them very effectively. And, um, you know, going back to the last question, it, it was a form of political education, um, which was a huge part of our campaign. So like sharing the stories of impacted youth um, and letting the broader community in Ottawa know what the daily reality was for them with cops in their schools. It was very crucial in demonstrating to, to everyone in Ottawa, how violent policing youth actually is. Um, I mean, some people didn't even know cops were in schools in their own city, um, including students actually. So when they heard that other schools were facing this crisis, um, notably, it was usually schools with a predominantly racialized student body who um, had the most police presence in Ottawa. Um, but when other students who weren't aware of this um, heard, you know, it was they were often called to action and it was an opportunity to bring them into the movement, let them share their own story with oppression um, with other forms of policing um, or other forms of subjugation that they have experienced in school or elsewhere and how they can relate to other students in the movement um, for policing free schools. At some point in time in 2022, ASILU opened up a anonymous reporting tool in the, you know, so-called post policing in schools era for Ottawa school boards, um, or I guess more accurately, just a post-SRO um, environment for Ottawa school boards. And that um, was really generative in that it gave youth, uh, parents and educators, as well as anyone else who is in the um, community of uh, schools in Ottawa, were able to share their stories about experiencing policing at the hands of teachers and administrators um, without uh, giving away any identifying information that they did not feel comfortable to do uh, to share with us. Um, and we found that the school, there's one school that really took uh, advantage of this reporting tool. And before the before a CELA collective um, came forward with our own plan of action to support those students, the students had already organized themselves and they had created um, a movement within the school that uh, that, that caused real change, um, material change for the students. Um, and they, you know, stood up and spoke up in a way that um, that really uh, inspired ASILU members. Um, and we got involved in, in that as well. But it really was the youth sharing their own stories and then connecting with each other and finding power uh, in that way. So I've found that you know, sharing stories, especially in a way that is peer-to-peer, um, -peer, that's more mutual than just, um, you know, you know, ripping your soul open to some administrator who's not going to listen to some board member who doesn't really care, um, was a lot, was a lot of power building and a lot of um, community building that wouldn't have happened without the space to share our stories in more genuine and heartfelt ways where people are actually listening and people actually um, care for each other. 
So, you know, the sharing stories, I think, went hand in hand with creating an environment for children to be honest and for their voices to be valued and for their experiences to not be seen as uh, as unimportant or um, theoretical or silly, but as like really, really um, human and uh, valuable. We've already touched on a lot of different ways that you build community through um, teach-ins, through um, outreach in schools as well. Um, but are there any other ways um, that you've built community um, that you do today? Um, and how does that work fit in within the larger vision of moving away from state options that often fall short for what people need on the ground? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, it's something May and I have talked a lot about together um, in terms of like moving away from state options. Um, it's something that I feel like is very still much in the works as we figure out what this means for our collective and, and the people we're in community with. Um, but of course, like the state does not protect us. It, it never has. Um, it operates to commit violence and generate profits through ongoing genocide and, and displacement of Indigenous peoples on these lands that we occupy. Um, so, you know, for, for us, moving away from state options, you know, it, it is very crucial because we've seen the way these systems are built to destroy communities and violate their rights. Like, even if, um, even, even down to uh, thinking about suspensions and expulsions um, for students who are at the Ottawa Carleton District School Board. Um, and I know May can speak a bit more to this as they've done advocacy with um, a lot of the youth and, and their families who are experiencing this. Um, but the the suspensions and expulsions policies and and um, the way that you have to navigate the, the, the school system and, and the bureaucracies within it, it's really terrible. Um, the results, like they never serve the interests of the the students or the families. It's it's extremely punitive and carceral. It exists just to regulate the behavior of youth rather than you know meeting them where they're at, um, and you know supporting their needs. And of course, ultimately, it's part of this system of racial control as well. Even alternative programming that students are provided with during expulsions and suspensions, for example, like they're also not sufficient. And it's not supportive of the student needs or the fact that they are missing so much class and coursework. Um, and then thinking about like the family as well and, and who's caring for the child while they are suspended. Um, because, you know, so many of the families who are experiencing this, you know, they are, you know, both parents. Um, if there are two parents, like they're working full time um, to provide for their families because a lot of the time these are low income um, communities. So I, yeah, like even down to that, it is, it, it functions extremely oppressively. Um, and so what is coming to mind is really showing up for our community um, in place of the fact that the state does not um, and will never serve um, our communities, but this to be done on an organizational level that is consistently building capacity. It's able to provide, um, you know, 
large supports in in place of like a literal state, right? This is like a huge job. Um, and how that happens, I think for me is to be determined. Again, this is something May and I have talked a lot about together, but I'm not sure where it kind of leads for us. Um, but there are uh, so because there's so much balancing that that really has to be done with other things in our lives as organizers and, and thinking about how we do this in a sustainable way. Um, but I know, of course, this is already happening around the world. Um, and people are really effectively building community um, and moving away from state options. So even looking at like mutual aid projects are, is a great example or something else um, that comes to mind are uh, safety plans that many women's groups have in in like how to respond to gender-based violence and abuse um, and how these groups show up for women and, and house them in their own homes, um, you know, whether that's in a spare bedroom or on a couch um, to ensure uh, safety and how, you know, these plans are in place in a sustainable way to ensure that everyone involved um, is able to meet their own needs and the person, uh, the person who's impacted their needs are met as well. Um, yeah. Um, I hope that answers your question. I, again, I feel like this is something I've, I've been thinking a lot about um, in terms of like a CELU's work. Um, but yeah, I'm sure May has lots of thoughts as well. I do. I do. Um, I think what comes to mind first of all is the idea around like um, independent infrastructure um, in the sense that it's independent from the state. And I think it's a long a long haul, really long term um, focus. And it's something that at Asilu we've been talking about a lot um, as a collective and as well just interpersonally amongst friends um, that we haven't figured out all the answers to. And it's one of the reasons why, as Asilu, we've stepped back from engaging um, at the school board level. Um, not completely, but we have highly reduced the amount of, say, you know, committee meetings that we go to or school board meetings that we go to, amount that we will um, delegate at a board or provide um, any kind of like uh, intervention in that in that like in that means, um, because as much as it burns us out. Um, it's also a balancing act of trying to hold um, these institutions accountable for the violence and the harm that they commit, while also not wanting to engage with them as the only means forward in terms of um, a form of justice or liberation for our communities and for ourselves. So I think a lot of the work that we've done more recently kind of fits into this question being that, you know, we're trying to move away from state options that fall short for us as a collective and as friends for each other. Um, so like Haley, as mentioned, creating safety plans, um, turning to each other in times of need when, you know, some of our men, uh, our members identify as mad, um, like with a capital M um, and as disabled and how can we show up for each other in times of needing support? Um, so that we don't end up, you know, getting the police called on us or end up needing to um, check ourselves into um, a hospital, you know, against or 
against our will or along with it, um, and finding ways to um, combat um, isolation and loneliness in uh, during the pandemic and while our membership is spread out across multiple cities at the moment. Um, so we've had um, uh, we've had a bit of a motto recently: less meetings and more friendship. Trying to find ways to create more independent infrastructure amongst ourselves. How can we show up for our members with children? How can we show up for our Black members who are, um, you know, experiencing uh, anti-Blackness in their educational settings or in their workplaces? Um, how can we show up for? Um, trans members during this heightened time of uh, fascism and specifically transphobia tied to that? Um, how can we continue to show up for our mem members, specifically immunocompromised or disabled members um, during an ongoing pandemic? Um, like what ways can we rely on each other and uplift each other so that this work can keep going and that we can start to see, like quite materially see how we can um, move away from state options um, on a smaller scale um, amongst us as members so that we can envision it and build it into a larger framework um, with other communities um, beyond our membership. Mm -hmm. So Edmonton is seeing organizers come together to keep cultural systems out of schools here. Um, is there knowledge from your experience in Ottawa that people here can take to find success and keep movements alive to do um, important work that we've been talking about uh, for this entire interview? Yeah, I mean, we know folks in Edmonton. Um, I I had a meeting with uh, organizers earlier in the year. It's so great to hear the amazing things um, they're going to be up to and how they're going to be pushing for policing free schools in unique ways that are specific to the conditions in so-called Edmonton and in the schools um, and how youth are experiencing policing um, in comparison to Ottawa. Um, I think policing free schools uh, as a movement, um, like we organize across, you know, so-called Canada. And so I feel like generally speaking, we're very well connected with one another. And I think this is really um, something that has led to a lot of successes um, in different cities. And so something that I would encourage is for like all of us to continue to stay connected, um, you know, cross strategizing and, and sharing, um, you know, how, um, we have been able to find success in our movements and in our campaigns and continue to generate wins. Um, you know, we've, uh, Asilu has been able to do this like uh, throughout like our existence as a collective, but also like specifically during um, our campaign, uh, the No Cops in School campaign. Um, that was, um, it was really helpful for us to talk to like other folks in Ontario who were, you know, operating under a lot of the same, you know, provincial legislation in, in terms of like removing cops from schools and in terms of like addressing policing. Um, and so, you know, being able to speak with folks um, who were operating under the same conditions, like that was very helpful. And so um, anytime I'm able to connect with other policing free schools organizers is um, really great. And I know um, something good is going to come out of it. And then also I, um, in terms of like keeping movements alive, the latter part of your question, I feel like may, um, you know, 
really touched on a lot of this in, in the last question um, about like prioritizing internal care organizationally. I feel like that is, yeah, like it, it's exactly what May said. Like it's something that we've really been prioritizing. Like we have all been able to come together and, and speak about um, the different capacities that we have um, and what that means for our organizing um, and how, um, you know, in order to create sustainable movements, we need to ensure that we're caring for one another. And this means building relationships and strengthening relationships with one another as friends um, and as comrades. So this is something that I also um, am like constantly encouraging other comrades of mine. Um, and, um, you know, just thinking about the financial needs of, of folks in your membership and and also the the emotional needs of your membership um you know even like spiritual needs um you know all these different things um and it really is unique to everyone's different situation and i think that is why like building individual relationships amongst one another is so important because everyone has a unique experience and has unique needs and in order to keep movements alive and find success um like we really need to ensure that we're all um coming together and building solidarity on like a interpersonal level but also an organizational level and only you know one has to happen um in order to get the other that was wonderful to hear. Um, Haley asked me, and I've just been nodding along very vis vigorously <laughs> to all of that. Um, I wanted to expand a little bit um, on some of those points, like in terms of like logistically, some um, knowledge that I would pass forward based on my experience with the specifically the win for police, like SRO free schools, um, would be leaving room for escalation, always think about what's next when you are, um, when you're putting action towards, um, wh when you're putting time and energy towards any form of action that is trying to reach policing free schools. Um, having room to escalate is always uh, a really good key strategy um, in campaign building. Um, find space for joy it's really hard sometimes to find joy in um, anti-carceral organizing just because of the violence that um, these carceral systems uh, rely on and how violence, you know, it seemed, they seem to fuel violence, they seem to be fueled by violence, um, or they are fueled by violence and they are violent. So that input and output and, and output for these um, these institutions that you are often up against um, is really draining. Um, so finding joy in different ways somehow is really crucial in the sustainability point. Um, I also think that that goes hand in hand, the finding joy with um, making connections and sharing knowledge. Um, as a group, as an individual, as an organizer, you know, one is never going to know everything and never going to have all the resources at their fingertips. But those um, connections with unions who have money, those connections with, um, you know, school teaching unions, um, you have resources in terms of knowledge and insider um, experience with the system from a different perspective than a past student. 
um, which many, uh, I find many um, grassroots abolitionist organizers in school spaces tend to be um, alumna from those schools, um, you know, making connections in different places so that instead of having to focus on what we don't have, we can go who has it, who would be willing to share this with me and with us. That has been really important in finding success. Those key partnerships, whether they're um, just uh, interpersonal um, or whether they're um, really about the movement to start, those can all build either way. So if you meet somebody who's for policing free schools, um, that can build into a personal relationship and the other way around as well. Um, and I don't think that it would have been possible for me to continue to be um, at a CELA collective and doing the work that I'm doing um, if, it, if I hadn't been doing it alongside people like Haley Yasmin. Like, the friendships that I've built from a CELO collection will last my whole life. And I think that the work that we will do will last beyond our lifetime if we are able to continue to do it in the way that we have and finding joy and finding, um, you know, knowledge and resource sharing is so key to not only success, but sustainability. I'm really grateful for the people that I've found uh, at the collective. So I hope that folks can not, you know, look past exput, uh, outputs, look past like the wins a little bit sometimes and think about like what it is that you and your comrades need in order to um, survive together and thrive together, um, you know, as a collective, but also as individuals trying to navigate this hellscape of worlds that, that we are all forced into. That was a very, uh, very well put. Um, thank you so much, Haley, Yasmin, and May for your time and for all this insightful information. Um, I think listeners are going to be able to take away just a whole lot from this experience that you've had and the organizing work that you do. Um, is there anything that you think, um, we missed with this conversation or any other information that you want to add that, uh, people should know? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having us here. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to, I'll just plug our socials. If anyone wants to see what we're up to um, and support our work, we can be found on Instagram uh, and Twitter at Asilu Collective, A-S-I-L-U Collective. On our website um, and in our link tree, we also have all of our past uh, reading group materials. Um, so all of the political education that we've put forward in the past few years is still accessible um, on those platforms as well. Um, and I just wanted to flag that the learning can happen asynchronously as well. So if folks missed our reading groups, they're still there. Wow, Omar. Yeah, that was that was a really great, great interview. I feel like a lot of what they were talking about is actually, you know, really relevant to basically the conversation we were just having at the start of this episode about, you know, the dynamic between individual police doing their duty and the role of a harmful institution like police in our society. You know, when they were talking about like the idea of perspective and keeping a focus on 
broader abolition of like colonial systems and oppressive systems rather than just focusing in on like cops in a specific context, like removing police from schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that kind of um, larger focus and, you know, really pinning it to education and putting that at the forefront, I think, is what has led to, you know, them being successful and kind of like building um, more sustainability. And, you know, even things like streaming that they mentioned, which in my own mind, like usually when I think of SROs, I don't really think of, you know, educational practices that, you know, segregate or put people on a path that's very different than others um, as a part of that conversation. But I think it's really useful and it was really nice to hear them like really broaden um that conversation um so yeah thank you a lot to Haley, yasmin and may um for for all their insight and knowledge um i think it was a really really great idea to have them on the show yeah and something that um may mentioned towards the end of that interview is this idea of less meetings and more friendships basically um you know putting more of a focus on interacting with community partners rather than trying to engage with the system itself or trying to um, basically push for change, not necessarily within that system, but like directly with that system. And in like an Edmonton context, that really reminded me of the way that, you know, counselors will always respond to concerns about police with this idea of, oh, take it up with the police commission oh, this is actually under the purview of the police commission. So go to the police commission meeting and make your voice heard there. In that framing, it's like up to the community uh, and those you know, negatively impacted by these institutions to then continue to put themselves in those unsafe spaces um, in order to push for any kind of change uh, to those harmful institutions. And I think what, what May is, is getting at here is just that that's futile, but also just not worth it to have to yeah put yourself in that situation. And I don't know, Omar, I think, you know, you've obviously been through similar experiences and can probably can probably speak to that. Yeah, I think it really boils down to um, something that Haley Yasmin mentioned early in the interview about like, taking a reform position or not. Um, but I think that like, just like engaging with people and doing it at a level of community makes so much more sense to, you know, really get the results and the outcomes that are really wanted because those outcomes will appear and you'll see the success of the work that's being done at a community level. Those things don't really appear um, when a reform is passed at City Hall, for example, or at a police board. So spending all of the time, you know, really in community, doing education or connecting with people or providing resources um, instead of the exhausting work that can take place at a council meeting or a committee meeting, um, I think just makes a lot more sense from, from an organizing perspective, right? Yeah, it's not necessary to put yourself in a situation where you are going to be bullied, you're going to be made to feel unsafe, where you're going to be, you know, miss 
construed where your opinions are going to be invalidated, dismissed, or at the very best, watered down and diluted into some sort of semblance of change that's convenient for the system. And I guess, yeah, following their um, advice, uh, I think that's probably something we'll try and do a lot better too, is just, you know, more connecting with local groups, with community organizers, and yeah, basically trying to make stuff happen from the bottom up. Speaking of that, um, locally, um, I have to thank Alex DaCosta, who has been a part of uh, Policing Free uh, Schools Edmonton, which has just launched recently. So um, that is a great initiative that um, everyone listening should go support. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot to to be learned um, for for the work that we do, and just like generally trying to support organizers um, that are trying to make change on the ground. Yeah, and thanks so much also to our um, Patreon supporters for supporting the show, and also yeah, putting up with our um, unpredictable schedules here. I guess you probably already know if you're a Patreon supporter, but just to clarify, I guess um, it's a monthly thing, but we like pause it or turn it off anytime um, we're like not going to get an episode out. Um, So yeah, no one's ever like charged, obviously, if we don't end up putting out an episode that month. But yeah, thanks so much for the support, um, especially over... Over the years since we've started this um, this project now, and yeah, we'll you know keep trying to you know have good discussions here and um, produce uh, something informative or just that uh, that resonates with you. Yeah, is that good? I think that's a good place to end. Okay. Yeah.